This is part D of episode 14, where Jude and I continue our conversation with Irina. We discuss government-backed home loan schemes, what you should consider when buying an investment property, and how to choose between a positively geared and a negatively geared property. Got it. Now, I think that's, that is interesting to hear because I think it's, it is such an important question, right, as to which really works for you as an, as an individual or as a couple to go in for that particular loan type. So that's really some good insight there, you know, in terms of how you really decipher and, you know, what are the, some of the things to look out for when it comes to, you know, the redraw versus the offset option. Another question, and I think, uh, which I guess a lot of people also are asking right now is in, in continuation to what you brought in a bit earlier there, you know, was, you know, those percentages of certain schemes that government backed schemes that helps say first home buyers, like the first home guarantee scheme. So just wanted to try to understand, do you, are you seeing a lot of uptake of that uh, scheme currently in the market? What are your uh, insights on that? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Lot of people are immensely benefited. These schemes are wonderful help to many, many families achieve mm-hmm. their dream of owing their own house. It, mm-hmm. it is really wonderful. I myself have done hundreds of applications for these government-backed schemes and seen people mm-hmm. getting into the market with mm-hmm. as low as 5% deposit. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. And not only now that they have put their foot into the real estate market, they are paying their own mortgage instead of someone else's, but mm-hmm. they are also building wealth by doing this, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. before this scheme, people will ideally have to wait to buy a property until either they save 20% or mm-hmm. they are ready to pay high LMIs. But uh, by the way of this scheme, customers avoid paying LMI and thus get more money from their loan to be used towards purchase settlement. Mm. And the this basically ML, LMI is replaced by the government guarantee. So if you uh, tick off certain qualifying criteria set up by the mm-hmm. government and mm-hmm. you're eligible for the scheme, then government gives a guarantee. Uh, that, is, that is a certificate which is attached to the title of the property until, of course, the loan to value ratio comes to 80% when the certificate mm-hmm. is taken back. That lets the borrower enjoy the benefit of taking the loan without paying any LMI. So all the LMI, which can go into th- tens of thousands of dollars, come mm-hmm. back to the loan. Got it. And Got uh, it. the best thing is, I would like to say here, is that this scheme has recently been expanded by the current federal government, stable from 1st July, whereby mm-hmm. it has been extended from, uh, eligibility has been extended from Australian citizens only to PRs mm-hmm. as well now. And mm. uh, the people don't have necessarily to be the first home buyers. Mm-hmm. If they haven't bought anything in last 10 years, they can qualify. There are more qualifying criteria, of, criteria of course, and reach out to the professional people or the bankers. But yeah, uh, this scheme definitely is expanding from 1st July. So look out if you are one of those who have been waiting to get in. Oh, oh excellent. That's, that's awesome. Really that's good excellent. news. So, Irina, I guess, you know, mortgage brokers, they help a lot uh, with first home buyers get their their first property and, and you know really take on the Australian dream of owning a home. And I guess you know when I was buying my first property, I relied on my broker a lot as well. But I guess just to give our listeners a bit of insight, can you tell us tell us a little bit about what you need to do behind the scenes after 
all the documents have been signed for the Section 32. So let's say, you know, everyone's agreed to buy the property, contracts have been signed, and let's say it's a two-month settlement process. What are you doing in those in those two months um, until settlement? Okay. Once the contract is signed, you send the contract, sign contract to your brokers and conveyances. Mm-hmm. What happens thereafter is that we take the contract, we order the valuation, because what we have to ensure is that the property meets the lending criteria. Every mm-hmm. lender has their specific property uh, profiles that they accept. So mm-hmm. your property falls within, I, I assume that there is a pre-approval already, already in the place there. So you, what we do is we order the valuation, then we take the valuation report along with the contract of sale to the bank. Bank do mm-hmm. their checks, uh, make sure that the financial situation is, has not changed since pre-approval. And then that's when they will issue an unconditional approval, which is also called the formal approval. Once we get a formal approval, then the next step is bank issue the loan offer documents. As a broker, we help client to sign off the loan documents. Loan document, loan offer document is a very important part because that's a contract you are signing with the bank for the next 30 years or for the life of the loan with the bank. It's a very mm. long time. Certainly, <laughs> 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 and that's why banks mentioned so many things in that document that um, the uh, borrowers are a lot of time confused and there are so many fees and charges. I see this very commonly, like people come back, oh, bank has mentioned this charge and that charge and you didn't mention about it. (laughs) And I'm like, uh, hang on, these are the charges they have to mention under um, banking regulations. Mm. Whatever they're going to charge or they may charge you over that span of loan term. So yeah, so loan offer document is where you uh, might need help, if, especially the first home buyers. Once they sign the loan offer document, submit it to the bank, uh, the bank will reach out to the conveyancer. That's mm-hmm. when the conveyancer will reach out to you and will ask you to sign all the documents related to uh, state revenue office, land title office. If that's a purchase settlement, case of refinance, you don't need a conveyancer. And then, yeah, if it's the purchase settlement, we have to ensure that the bank has current, uh, correct account details to debit the shortfall on the day of settlement. So suppose if your contribution is 15%, you have only paid 10%, then the 5% will be deducted on the day of settlement. So banks write account details from where they'll take the 5% deposit. Then the stamp duty will be taken off on the date of settlement. There are a few other fees and charges like council rates, water charges and stuff. They'll all be charged. So all of this is what we try to consolidate. Uh, the brokers are basically lies between the conveyances and the banks and the other parties involved. The, we also prompt client to have the final inspection of the property, again, in the purchase settlement. That if there is anything that is out of the box, they can reach out to the conveyancer and get it sorted before the settlement. No, I think that's that that is pretty extensive in terms of the the amount of work and the effort that it takes to work, get behind the scene and get everything across the line. I myself have experienced that, Irina. Like you know, I remember when we were going through the process with you, you made it as seamless as possible in order to uh, ensure that we have everything ready at the time of uh, the settlement period. So yeah. I, I definitely sometimes yeah, if you're not taking help of professional people, how daunting can it be for the first home buyers? Because yeah, absolutely very daunting. People <laughs> sometimes think that you buy the property, you get your loan done, and that's it. But there are so many other things involved during the process that if you don't mm-hmm. get it right every step, then at the end towards the settlement, it can be very daunting. No, absolutely, yeah. and I, and you don't want it to be a daunting experience. You want it to be like because there's so many other things going on in addition to that, right? Like you you want to 
try to keep your mind as calm as possible towards the end so you know i can definitely vouch for that uh, that it really did put us at ease when it came to the settlement period because we knew we had someone who we could trust on to get it done so completely uh, you know salute you guys when it comes to uh, all the back end work which needs to go in to get everything across the line it, that's why yeah, more than 70% of the loans are now written by mortgage brokers Mm. Uh, and we can see why because of the the amount of back end work which really goes into getting all of this across the line so yeah that's that's a very valid point that you raised right there and and even when it comes to it's not just that stage of your journey when you you know coming in and you're buying your first home and you know getting everything across the line when it comes to settlement but it's an ongoing kind of a thing when you also need to you know check with your mortgage brokers about the best interest rates out there you know so yeah. how often do you think uh, rena like you know once you obviously into your entire journey as a as a house owner how often should someone really approach a mortgage broker to see whether you know they should refinance for a better interest rate yeah once your loan is set up then mm-hmm. ideally every 6 months you can revisit your loan and see mm-hmm. if you are on the best rates because once you set up the loan banks have already given you a discount on the rates the banks don't revise their discounts within 6 months period mm, okay and it is not ideal to jump the banks that often as well because it would dent your credit report if you keep jumping banks as well ideally you should go back to your banker or broker and mm-hmm. ask them to review your loan and see if it's on the best rates if a further mm-hmm. discount is possible after 6 months Mm-hmm. After a couple of years into the loan, if you think that there are better options available outside, then that's when you can think if you want to refinance your loan or, um, first of all, the first opportunity you give to the bank if they want to revise your uh, interest rates and give you the best offer in the market. If they are not able to match it, probably then you can think of moving the banks. Got it. Got it. And I guess just switching gears a little bit. So looking from an investor. point of view do you generally have a rule of thumb in terms of okay for someone's property journey should they buy an investment property first or should they buy that investment property after they buy their principal place of residence and what other kind of factors should come into play before people consider an investment property so yes again it is very individualistic thing uh, i would like to insist sir because mm-hmm. one that is good for uh, me may not be good for you mm-hmm. uh, if i talk about my personal journey uh, we mm-hmm. started with buying investment properties first we uh, lived in rental house until we bought three or four investment properties mm. oh okay so you did the rent vesting process correct correct yep. that's what it is called today <laughs> not this time they the system did not existed when i started <laughs> <laughs> millennial term <laughs> so we started because we lived in melbourne but we started up our property portfolio back in wa because the price point in melbourne is always way higher than wa mm. so with the limited finances that we had we started buying in properties there because the important thing is to put your door into uh, put your foot into the door yeah start mm, yeah. your real estate journey as soon as your finances your budget allows Mm-hmm. That's the most important thing because uh, within Australian economy, it has been proven that if you buy decent thing in a decent location, the mm-hmm. usually the real estate doubles in ten years. Mm-hmm. So it is important when do you start your ten years? Mm-hmm. Started yep. our ten years 
as soon as we got the first job here in Australia, uh, locally yep. after migration. So that's the important thing. If we would have waited then to buy something in Melbourne, we would mm-hmm. have to wait for another few years to accu- um, accumulate that savings and get into the market. But mm-hmm. in that way, the price point was really low that time. Yep. And the uh, mining boom was to come. So we, yep. bought, we saw the property increase. Then we turn it around, bought another one, then turn it around, bought another one. And that's how we made equity enough to mm. buy a decent thing in Melbourne. Got mm. it. Mm. Again, it's All a very right. individualistic thing where you stand in your journey. But the most important thing is that you should start your journey as soon as you can. That's when your 10 year period starts. And then mm-hmm. that's how you keep growing your portfolio. Yeah. Yeah. So you really need to try to make money work for you right rather than the other way around where you know you're always trying to just work hard for money you should flip this flip the script in in a way right that's (laughs) the smart word behind it absolutely sam spot on Mm, that is that is actually correct but i think at the same time if you look at it irina i think with the current situation and it's uh it's like, you know, people still are sitting on the fence because of, you know, the current scenario in terms of those rates and how it really is so high at this point of time. You know, they're a little bit worried when it comes to a double loan scenario, which can be scary for some individuals. But as you said, right, you know, maybe maybe having a more structured approach into saving up for that investment property as a strategy and then, you know, getting into it could also, as Sam also mentioned, make money work for you in a way which would be good. But uh, besides this, that structured approach where we save up and then, you know, uh, save up enough to buy that investment property, are there any other strategies that, that individuals can think about when getting into the investing market? Like, for example, you know, reusing e- uh, equity in their existing property. Like, could you give us an example of that kind of strategy? Yes, yes, yes. That is a very, very um, common and more than not, the first time mm-hmm. investors definitely use this strategy. Like most of the time, because you see, once you have uh, bought your first home and you have settled in and you have got yourself accustomed to the liability that you have taken in, and now you're mm-hmm. in a comfortable position, mm-hmm. comfortable enough to move on to the next step, mm-hmm. then the ideally you can't just sit there waiting for another 20% to be accumulated to buy mm. property. The ideal thing is that the wealth that you have built in your existing property, you have to use and tap on that wealth. Otherwise, what is that wealth sitting and doing there? Nothing. As Sam said, the money has to work for you. Mm. So mm. that's how your the equity trapped in your house is going to work for you. So you draw down the equity from the house mm-hmm. and then you invest it to buy another investment property. And that's how there is a double benefit. The first thing, you don't have to wait again for a number of years to accumulate 20%. You can get a property sooner. The second mm-hmm. thing is that when you are drawing the equity from your owner-occupied house and mm-hmm. the purpose is to buy investment, you can claim your negative getting benefit on that as well because the purpose is investment. So, mm. you, so sometimes you can end up claiming negative getting on the entire 100% of the property purchase amount. So why reusing equity is very important. Like if you have a trapped equity, you're not using it. You are losing out on your chances of making a decent property portfolio. It also depends on individual risk appetite. I've got it. Now that's that is that is some good advice there. Yeah. Yeah. Now, thanks for sharing that arena. And I guess 
early on while i was keen to really grow my my property portfolio i've kind of switched a little bit now more towards shares but i do still at the moment hold one investment property and with that investment property i've essentially tried to go for an interest only loan for the entire period that i've held the property Um, i just wanted to get your take in terms of today in 2023 is it harder now for people to get interest only loans you mentioned obviously you know the benefit is the tax deductibility of the entire loan because it's interest only and because you're doing it for an investment property but i just wanted to ask is it harder now for people to obtain this kind of loan definitely it's not easy to take an interest only loan for a longer period because it affects your borrowing capacity Mm. borrowing capacity is already under constraint in the present environment because if you could have borrowed, say, a million dollar year and a half ago, now you can borrow only 800,000. So you're already in a compromised situation for, about the borrowing capacity. If you go for a longer interest only period, it further gets down because mm. what the loan that you have to repay in 30 years will now be repaid in 25 years. Mm. Your mm. later repayments are more. Yeah. Mm. So, yeah. So that is one negative effect that you can see nowadays than it was earlier because earlier borrowing capacity was not as tight the second thing is the interest only rates are dearer they have always been yes uh, that also does not leave if you see like there is only 0.2 percent sometimes or 0.25 percent difference between p and i and interest only meaning that your difference between the repayments is sometimes only 405 dollar 500 dollar a month Mm. So that is another factor. So it's not difficult as such that banks' policies have changed. No, they're still giving you interest-only loans. Of course, there are restrictions on uh, owner-occupied interest-only. That's still being restricted. But with investment interest-only, the policies have not changed a lot. However, the the main thing is that it is constraining your borrowing capacity. So more and more people are now going for P&I. Right. Okay. So if I can try and rephrase, if my investment property is on interest only and I try to get another, a second investment property, my borrowing capacity is constrained because I'm on that interest only loan. But if I was actually on a principal and if I, if I was on a P&I loan instead, if I wanted to get that second investment property, it would be slightly easier because I've got better borrowing capacity, correct? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, okay. Yep, yep, yep. Awesome, awesome. Cool. That is good. And and uh, just to uh, you know touch upon one topic there earlier that you mentioned, uh, Rina, in terms of, and it's, it's a bit of a controversial question usually, but, you know, when we talk about any financial assets, right, we look for cash flow positive assets. But, you know, in terms of property, there's also the negatively geared strategy, which is also talking, you know, spoken so much about, right? When you're looking at investment property, is it, do you go for like positively geared or negatively geared um, assets? What are your thoughts on that? Okay. Again, your view on that may be different from mine because Mm -hmm. you might have different financial situations. Mm -hmm. Um, But the thing is, there are two types of uh, properties you would like to invest in. There would be one that would give you regular cash positive outflow, your, whereby your rental income will be more mm-hmm. than your repayments and your other fees and charges on the house, like council rates and stuff. Another type of properties whereby the rental yield is less than mm-hmm. your interest rates and repayments, mm-hmm. which means that you have to pay something out of your pocket to maintain that property. But 
then the difference might be that the, uh, the second property might increase in capital value way faster and better than the first property. Mm-hmm. Getting it. the best of the two is, I would say a myth. It is very, very unlikely that you will get a property with a high rental yield and a high capital growth. Mm-hmm. You have to get a better rental yield or a better capital growth. So for someone who is young, starting their investment journey, they've mm-hmm. got a long working life ahead of them. They can mm-hmm. go for something which is a more capital growth sort of a thing because they can make the repayments. They can pick out some few dollars out of their pocket to maintain that property. Mm-hmm. But if you are someone who has, say, only a decade or less of working life left, probably might want to have a property which gives you a constant positive cash flow, like every month you're $100 out of that property. Like a typical example that I see is I have a client um, who buy, bought an apartment in the city. Mm-hmm. Know the rental yield of the apartment in the city is amazing. Uh, mm-hmm. So, of course, every month he is getting a few hundred dollars. Mm-hmm. But then the cost of that apartment is uh, after five years is still the same. Okay. Only 10%, 10% growth, total 10% growth in the mm-hmm. five years time on that apartment. Mm. As I see a, somebody, somebody buying a house uh, far away in Pakenham mm-hmm. and rental yield was less, they had to uh, pay $500 every month net of everything to maintain mm-hmm. the property. But in the same five years time, it mm-hmm. increased by 60%. Mm-hmm. So that depends, like, what do you want? What is your goal or what is your objective? Do you don't want to stress your budget and your pocket and you want to take it easy? higher rental yield properties where you go for uh, if you're a high income earner and you also want a good capital growth then the negative we get property might be the one for you no that is that is really good and you know that those are some really good examples you've given so that you know listeners can get an idea as to exactly what situation suits you in terms of your scenarios so you know thank you for that Irina. that was really good yeah, no, thank you so much, Arena, for your insights. I think we could literally talk all day about property and investing, <laughs> but I think we've come to the end of our time today. So I just want to say really thank you so much for being on the podcast today. I think our listeners have benefited tremendously from your knowledge and your experience. So, yeah, just uh, from the bottom of our heart, thank you for... Having, Thank having you very us. much, Sam, <laughs> for giving me this opportunity to share the knowledge because I always believe that the more knowledgeable um, the borrowers are, everyone's job becomes so much more easier and they can actually yeah. take an informed decision so they can owe their decision. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Thank you for this opportunity. Yeah, no dramas at all. And for our listeners, if you want to reach out to Irina, you can actually find her on the web. The website is apitude.com.au. So that's spelled A-P-T-T-U-D-E.com.au. Or you can even send her an email. So it's Irina, I-R-I-N-A, at apitude.com.au. So again, thank you listeners for tuning in. If you'd like to contact either Jude or myself, please send us an email. The email address as always is ozinvesting2020 at gmail.com or through the contact section of our social media site on Instagram. Also, if you haven't done so already, please leave us a rating on Spotify or iTunes. It would really mean the world for us if you could support. And with all that said and done, Please enjoy the rest of your day and we'll catch you in the next episode. See you later.